This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 23rd of February, the second day of national immunisation. That's right. And we've had so, so, so many questions from our audience about how the vaccine rollout's going to work, how you're going to know when it's your turn in the queue. And rather than us answering those questions, we thought we'd bring in Lauren Roberts, who's a health reporter, one of our colleagues in the ABC Science Unit, because Lauren's been looking into the vaccine rollout and how it's going to work. And she's here to answer your questions. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Good morning. Hi, Lauren. You know, I did what a relief it is to have somebody on the coronavirus who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> well, Tegan knows what she's talking about. I'm talking about me. Okay, whatever. Uh, Lauren, let's get straight into it. We've got Dolores asking, she's just spoken to her GP's practice and they have no idea how the vaccine's going to be rolled out. Um, They waited eight weeks for their flu vaccine last year. What are the logistics that are involved in the vaccine rollout? Well, because there's lots of different phases, we're not certain about how people are going to be notified through the later rollouts. So we're talking about rollouts that are going to happen in the later half of this year. We do know that people that are included in the phase 1A of the vaccine rollout, so that's aged care workers, people that are currently living in aged care, quarantine workers, a lot of these people, they're going to be told by their employer and have the coronavirus um, vaccine lined up by their employer and then probably get the vaccine at work. So people that work in aged care, for example, they'll probably get their vaccine there. But it's the later stages that we're not too sure about. We know that there's a good chance that we'll eventually be able to register online to get the coronavirus vaccine. Um, But at this stage, there is no need to register. It's a little bit of a wait and see. So just to be clear, Lauren, and I'm getting this sort of flavour as well, in Israel, people were contacted because they had the electronic health records in in the public insurance companies. You're saying is that this whole strategy is going to rely on us registering and then seeing how we qualify at what stage of the priority list? Well, it's an important thing right now to just make sure your Medicare details are up to date um, and if you can, to have it linked to your MyGov. And then we know that the federal government has spent about $31 million on a public information campaign and a lot of the details about the later rollout, which most of Australians are going to be included in, is going to be coming out there. So it'll be posters, TV campaigns, there'll be a lot of information on the Commonwealth website. But right now, It's just that first phase that we really know they're going to be getting their vaccine soon. We know that they're going to probably be finding out through their employer, but everyone else, we're kind of just going to have to wait and see. We've got a question from Paul saying, if someone has an underlying medical condition, which is one of the things that makes them a higher priority for vaccine, do they need to prove that condition with a letter from their doctor or is it enough that the condition is noted in the My Health Record system? Look, it's it's probably enough that it's noted in the My Health system record system. But if someone does have an underlying medical condition, it's a great idea for them to talk to their GP anyway, just to make sure that they have all the information so that they know if if there has been any testing around their particular medical condition and and they feel assured and safe after talking to their doctor because because a lot of this stuff we're, we're still learning in real time. It's just a great idea to know that your personal circumstances has been covered off by your GP. So just uh, an information for all Coronacast listeners, you need to talk to your GP about he, he or she uploading your record into My Health Record. So you've all, everybody's got a My Health Record unless you've opted out. 
I would strongly suggest you opt back in if you haven't got one. But if you haven't opted out, you've got one automatically. It will contain your your prescriptions that you've had, but your GP really needs to upload your record, and that will be the way that you get your diagnosis into the system. So you've got to talk to your GP about doing that. And it's a, you know, it's a great time to actually make sure, just supplementing what Lauren's saying there, of making sure your My Health record is up to date. And that's to talk to your GP about uploading your data. So Lauren, you've been talking to the health department about all of these things, questions that have been cropping up again and again from our listeners. What's the overall message that you're getting from the health department? So the overall message that I've been told time and time again is just to try and make sure that your MyGov is up to date and to stay tuned, to stay calm. And every time that I've spoken to the health department, they have reiterated that um, the vaccines are safe and they do work and have asked everyone that can get one to get one. But there is still obviously some logistics that they've got to sort out. Yeah, absolutely. Like a rollout of a vaccine at this stage, at this scale, has has never been done before. So again, it's probably likely that there will be some kind of online registry system, but we we don't know when that might launch or what that might look like or what that might need because a, a rollout to this scale has never happened before. The government is still trying to sort of logistically manage how everything is going to look and how it's going to work. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for answering the questions from our listeners today. And of course, you've got a story up on the ABC News website that people can find that answer these and so many more questions. Um, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. And keep sending your questions in. If there's something that you want to know the answer to, we might not have answered it yet, but we are trying to, to get the answers all up there on the site. So if there's something you want to know, just ask. That's right. The questions that Lauren sees go to the same place as the questions that you send in to us, abc.net.au slash coronacast, and you click on Ask Your Question. And so, Norman, while we're doing questions, I've got a couple that I want to throw at you, including this one from Karen, who says uh, her work colleague says she doesn't want to get a COVID vaccine because, according to her brother, who's a doctor, the vaccine is DNA altering. Can you please set the record straight? Yeah. So you're obviously talking about the mRNA vaccines, and they're not DNA altering. The mRNA goes into the soup of the cell. So the DNA in your cell is in something called the nucleus. So the mRNA doesn't go into the nucleus, it goes into the soup of the cell and sends a message in the soup of the cell to little organs in the cell called organelles in the cell called ribosomes to manufacture the viral protein. It's exactly what the virus does, except all that this vaccine is doing is for a little part of the virus. So it's like getting the virus and the virus does not change your DNA. Some viruses do and are carcinogenic like HPV, Um, and uh, the hepatitis B virus and so on. But this one isn't. It doesn't touch your DNA. It just goes into the cell. So neither of the mRNA vaccines or any mRNA vaccine does that. And eventually the mRNA disappears and the uh, spike protein goes into the blood and the immune system just reacts to the spike protein in the blood. So it's not DNA altering. And a question from Vaughan who says, well, first of all, Vaughan says, Norman and Tegan, thanks for always super spreading the good word. Nice one, Vaughan. Um, Vaughan's question is relating to the forecast of when we go back to normal after the first round of vaccines. Aside from hotel quarantine, when do you see us relaxing other restrictions that we're living with, like the cap on larger gatherings, general admission concerts and those sorts of things? And should the ring of hotel quarantine workers having Pfizer vaccine give the public health team enough confidence, even with the uh, possible variants overseas? Vaughan really wants to get back to big live music venues. The problem is the variants. So the uh, Astra vaccine does not protect well against the the South African variant. And therefore, we're still nervous, going to be nervous about hotel quarantine and escape from hotel quarantine. However, 
if our hotel workers, border workers and people, drivers and so on, all get immunised with the Pfizer vaccine, it is much more effective against the South African variant. So you've got to differentiate between personal protection and the risk from overseas spread. So the problem then becomes if, you, if it, we all go back to normal and we're mixing and not socially distancing at all, and then you get spread of the vaccine, we are at risk. So I would predict that until hotel quarantine is relaxed with vaccines that are highly effective against the variants, we may see a fair bit of social distancing being insisted upon. Not mask wearing necessarily, but just so that we, um, we don't go completely back to normal. So if a virus happens to escape, there, there's more protection. However, Hotel quarantine workers getting protected with the Pfizer vaccine, not the Astra vaccine, but the Pfizer vaccine, and hopefully their families getting protected as well with the Pfizer vaccine, that will give much more surety against the variant. So it's kind of a ring of protection around our highest risk, which is people bringing things in from overseas. And then one thing that was doing the rounds on social media a few months ago, and we got a lot of questions from our audience about as well, was the role of vitamin D in perhaps protecting people against severe COVID. And there's some new research out there that speaks to this. Yes. I mean, it would be lovely if it did. And there's a bit of, there is a bit of evidence, you know, circumstantial evidence that vitamin D might help. But a, but a randomised trial just reported uh, last week of high-dose vitamin D in hospitalised patients with moderate to severe COVID-19 made no difference at all. So whether or not low vitamin D increases your susceptibility is another matter, but it doesn't look as though there is a major effect of vitamin D, unfortunately. It'd be nice if they did. Well, that's almost it for us from Coronacast today, but you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like, because I mean, I personally really like reading them. And if you want to leave us a question there, we might answer it too. But Norman, before I let you go, I've heard that you've been two-timing me with a different podcast. I have. I have. I went on the Pop Test, which is a new science comedy quiz podcast. And you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. It was great fun. And you can find out what penicillin has got to do with condoms. And it's not anything to do with uh, sexually transmissible diseases. There was a a very disturbing series about a series of questions involving you, a rabbit's eyeball and decapitation. So I urge our listeners to go and find out for themselves. Absolutely. Things you can do with a rabbit's eye that you never imagined. I didn't know. Anyway, you can find that on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then. 